0: Hi, this is John Curry. Welcome to another episode of the Secure Retirement Podcast. Today, I'm sitting here with Dr. Jim Murdahl, president of Ty Community College. Welcome, Jim. Thank you so much, John. I've been looking forward to this because uh, I'm a graduate of TCC way back in 1976, a long time ago. And I'm glad that you agreed to let us have this interview today because I want you to tell your story.
1: Well, it's very kind of you. I always enjoy our conversations.
0: I do too. Thank you so much for being here. Let's start by sharing your background. I bet a lot of people don't know that you had a career in law enforcement. Would you share your background and then we'll get into TCC?
1: Sure. Um, My original uh, entry into the workforce was as a deputy sheriff with the Leon County Sheriff's Department in 1977. Um, Pretty much fresh out of out of college, <clears throat> law enforcement was my my interest uh, and I suppose my passion at the time. So I began uh, working uh, here in Leon County in 1977. Um, had the good fortune to work my my way up through the ranks to the rank of lieutenant. Uh, along the way, I, I got to do everything from being officer friendly to being uh, the commander over the tactical street crimes unit, uh, which. Uh, was a little more uh, aggressive, let's say, than being uh, officer-friendly, but I loved every bit of everything we did. Um, I left Leon County and uh, went to work with Fort Walton Beach Police Department. I was recruited over there as the assistant chief of police over patrol and detectives and uh, I was there for about six months when the chief got fired. And um, so it was a pretty difficult time, and I was appointed the interim chief. Um, crazy time over there, John. It was uh, uh, the department had voted to unionize. The crime rate had gone up over 30%. We had seven civil rights suits pending. (laughs) The politics were awful, which led to the police chief being fired. It's a terrible, terrible time. What year was that? This was, uh, good question, 83, 84, somewhere in that time frame. Um, And um, so I did that job and did surprisingly well. Uh, But I was really young. Um, I, I, I was not ready for for that job. I was I was offered the police chief's job by the city manager, and at the time, I was also offered a job to come back to Tallahassee and work for the attorney general. And I took that one um, because less I, stress, right? <laughs> well, well, yeah, because the <laughs> politics over there were nuts. So, so I came back worked uh, worked for Jim Smith, uh, attorney general at the time, and then uh, a year under uh, Attorney General Butterworth. Uh, before moving over to um, the Florida Department of Law Enforcement, where I worked for 11 years. Excuse me. Tell us what you did when you worked with the Attorney General's Office. Well, I was the bureau chief over a program called Help Stop Crime. Uh, it was the state's crime prevention program, and that was the program, by the way. Uh, when you hear people talk about school resource officers today, right. Right. Uh, we created the curriculum uh, that certified school resource officers. It's one of the things we did. Uh, we did training programs for all the crime prevention officers throughout the state of Florida and taught them how to do everything from security surveys to, you know, rape prevention. So it was a great, great deal.
0: So you wouldn't think that the Attorney General's office would be doing something like that on the educational side. Hmm. That's interesting to hear that. Yeah. Because you'd think that would come under more of the law enforcement day-to-day stuff. Not from all over the, the top with the attorney general, so that's fascinating.
1: And it has since expanded. I mean, that's a long time ago. So their office now does uh, a lot. For instance, with victims' rights. So it's a, it's a, it's a, a wonderful thing that the attorney general does under this.
0: Very good. So you're about to say when you left there? I think you were going to say FDLE went to Florida Department <coughs> of
1: Law Enforcement uh, in 1988, uh, and uh, was over the. Uh, curriculum for advanced and specialized training for law enforcement officers throughout the state. And then uh, I was fortunate enough to progress up through the ranks there. I had some different assignments so I worked uh, in the Florida Department of Law Enforcement Academy. I worked um, was actually part of creating what is called the Florida Criminal Justice Executive Institute which was perhaps the most exciting thing I did there. (laughs) Uh, And that was something that was created in the early 90s because believe it or not There was a lot of training out there for law enforcement recruits, Uh, there was a lot of training for patrol, for SWAT, for K9, but there was no training prior to that time specifically for the CEOs, for the chiefs and sheriffs. And so uh, I had the privilege of joining that team to work for a gentleman with a PhD to develop uh, that curriculum. We worked in conjunction with Florida State University's uh, ASCII school so that the curriculum we developed was actually approved for college credit and, and graduate credit. So that's where I was persuaded by my boss to go back to school to pursue a Ph.D. I had a master's degree at that time. And so that got me back, back in, in on the route to a Ph.D. during that period of time. The other thing I did over there, which was uh, sort of fun for me, was around the Around the 20-year mark in my in my career in, in uh, the Florida retirement system, the commissioner came to me and asked me to go take over the Office of Human Resources, personnel. And candidly, my first a- answer was, what did I do to you? And uh, <laughs> he, uh, he said, no, 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 I want you to go down there, I need a fresh set of eyes. So after a few back and forths with him over, I don't know, weeks, I ended up going to, the, to Human Resources, John, and I'll tell you something that job was one of the best jobs I ever had in terms of what I've learned in my career you know to learn about the values of HR to learn about to deal with people's issues let me stop and say that you know, you're dealing with the most what well, the most personal issues people have when you're in HR you're dealing with their pay mm-hmm. you're dealing with insurance problems that they really don't want other people to know about uh, you're dealing with their egos from the standpoint of their job titles and so forth So I I did that job for a while when I was over there as well. And then again, progressed on up.
0: I I never knew that you were in HR.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, we all have backgrounds. This is the most fascinating part for me. When I talk to students uh, and and I ask them, you know, what do you think you want to do? Where do you think you want to go? And some of them seem to think they understand a straight line between where they are and where they want to go. I chuckle a little bit inside because... We're all products of opportunities and preparation. Yep. And, and, and and misfortune. Yeah, that's true. And Good. misfortune. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I've had a number of different things. And all of those add up to really kind of create who we are. All right. So will the real Jim
0: Myrtle <laughs> please stand up? <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. So when you left FDLE... Tell us what you did from the standpoint of you were involved with the TCC, I think, from the standpoint of the Pat Thomas Academy. Right. Was that where you went,
1: the next step? Yes. In 1999, T.K. Weatherall, who was president of TCC, and he had just acquired uh, the Pat Thomas Law Enforcement Academy. He had, he had gotten the Florida legislature to transfer it from the Leon County school system, uh, Lively VOTEC, over to the college. And in the process of that transfer, most of the staff who were there stayed with Leon County School System. So there were openings, lots of openings, frankly. And um, my name was surfaced because around that time, uh, the sheriff of Leon County, who was uh, Larry Campbell at the time, and the police chief, who was Walt McNeil at that time, had expressed concerns that, that in the transition. They were afraid that the college would not take care of their interests there as local law enforcement. So uh, TK saw me as a a good candidate from the standpoint that I had uh, I was working on my doctorate, and he found that fascinating candidly that he was a cop who was working on a doctorate. Um, and the other thing was I had both local law enforcement experience and specifically with Leon County, and I had state law enforcement experience. So. His thinking, which I think was good, was that um, I could assure both sides that I understood their needs and that I would make sure their needs were taken care of. So I joined TCC in 1999 to run the Pat Thomas Law Enforcement Academy. So you'd be a good
0: bridge between the two. Right. Makes sense. Right. And how long were you there? And what did you accomplish while you were there?
1: Well, I was there for a total of 11 years and um, so this 99 I joined and so in Around 2001, um, Governor Bush uh, expressed concerns about three different aspects of state law enforcement and uh, wanted to change these three different aspects. One of them was the use of state aircraft. Uh, He felt there was a different, better way to have all the aircraft sort of pooled and used across all the state agencies, law enforcement agencies. Second was communications, or what some people call dispatch. And the third was training, uh, because training was decentralized. Each agency does its own thing. Some, some of your listeners may be surprised to know there are 12 different state law enforcement agencies in Florida. And so um, I was asked to put a proposal together, which I did. And the governor uh, liked the proposal. In essence, the proposal said, Uh, There would would be economies and efficiencies if we co-located law enforcement in one place. Candidly, there was a lot of opposition. Um, Law enforcement agencies are fiercely proud. (laughs) And so to suggest consolidation would be uh, wrong and and deadly. Uh, So what I suggested was co-location. So we brought out there the, what most people know, uh, are more familiar with, gr- groups like the Florida Highway Patrol Academy, the, F- the Wildlife Academy, the FDLE Academy, um, and then some other lesser known uh, entities. Also around that time, we created the Tallahassee Fire Academy. I worked with Cindy Dick when she was the Chief of Tallahassee Fire Department. And Cindy put it really well one day. She said, Jim, look, we're, we're proud. We're firefighters. We don't want to work for a law enforcement academy, under a law enforcement academy. The Florida Highway Patrol Academy, which was huge, it's, it's a, a very large and very important operation, they didn't want to work at the Pat Thomas Law Enforcement Academy. So it was around that time, like, well, the governor was convinced, and we began that move. And uh, we created what I would call an umbrella term, the Florida Public Safety Institute. To describe the place where all of these academies could operate and that's what we have today now It's the, it's the Florida Public Safety Academy it's the largest uh, public safety Institute in the southeastern United States now uh, we have about 1,500 acres of land uh, we put thousands of officers through there per year uh, and and the, the magic of what makes it work is that every agency maintains its own culture uh, that way, you've got the FHP Academy, which is p- perhaps one of the more military in its approaches, mm-hmm. uh, you know, all the way through. <clears throat> We've also got the Department of Corrections training there. The, the, they trained corrections officers. They train correctional probation officers. We've got Department of Juvenile Justice there. We've got um, the Tallahassee Fire Academy. So it's it has become a huge operation, and that's what I was, had the privilege to grow for 11 years. That's amazing.
0: So I'm thinking, when I ask you to do this interview, that we're going to learn about TCC. Yeah. So we've learned about a whole lot more from the standpoint of how law enforcement works in our local governments and state governments. So that's a bonus. Thank (laughs) you for sharing that. Absolutely. So bring us from you being in that role to how in the world you become president of Tallahassee Community College.
1: Well, along the way, I I did finish my PhD, uh, not in education, but in public administration. But I finished my PhD, and uh, I had every intention in the world of retiring from the Florida Public Safety Institute. I never had uh, any inkling that I would ever apply for or want to be a college president, never. Uh, It wasn't until my predecessor announced that he was leaving to go to St. Pete College that uh, people came to me and said you know Jim you ought to think about it because you've got an entrepreneurial mindset you've grown a pretty significant operation out there uh, you got your doctorate you've got the right credentials and um, and that's the first time it ever occurred to me around but more significantly around that time uh, I had created a dual enrollment program with East Gadsden High School, which was across the street, to allow high school seniors to come across the, uh, the street to the academy in the afternoons and uh, complete the corrections academy. So they'd go to high school in the morning, come across the street in the afternoon and work on correctional certification. Law enforcement wouldn't, generally doesn't hire people at the age of 19, but, uh, and 19 is the minimum age to get hired in, in criminal justice. But corrections had indicated they would be hiring at, at age 19. So we, we started this dual enrollment program. It was, it was a great success. Um, and the very first class, John, um, there was one of the graduates who finished her high school diploma, finished our program, got, got a job with Liberty Correctional Institution with the Florida Department of Corrections, bought a home, bought a car for her grandmother, and brought two siblings home from foster care to live with her. And her mother thanked me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when her mother thanked me, what she said changed me. What she said was, thank you for moving my daughter into the middle class. Wow. And that happened around <clears throat> the time that my predecessor decided to leave. And with all and other people's encouragement, I thought to myself, wow, if, if I could become president of the college, and change people's lives like that, then I'm going to give it a shot. Absolutely. And, and I applied, and candidly, I'm blessed that I was selected.
0: That's awesome. What a story. Because that tugged at your heartstrings,
1: didn't yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely.
0: <clears throat> Those of us who know you know that this is not a job to you. No, it's, it's not. a It's a mission. It's a mission. You could retire now if you wanted to. So you're doing it because you you love the students, you love what you're doing. So let's talk about your mission, you personally, not TCC right now, but Jim Murdahl, employee of TCC, because you're an employee too. Mm -hmm. What what do you see as the mission for whatever time you have remaining at TCC?
1: Well, it's not not a mission. Um, Certainly one of the things, as you know, I care deeply about, and that is giving students the opportunity to change their lives. Um, I care deeply about that. I want to make sure that our programs are laser focused on, on outcomes that matter. So I make sure in that regard that we don't have any programs that don't take a, a, a graduate uh, to a university at a level as a, of a junior uh, or that that program doesn't take them to a job with a family sustaining wage. Those are the things I care about. So there, I say that John, because there are some colleges that are—I'll just say—are not quite as laser-focused as we are. I'm very proud. If you look at our workforce programming, and you look at the Department of Economic Opportunities website on what the ten hottest jobs are in our region, we provide training, skills, certificates, and degrees for all ten of those ten. Uh, so we're very laser-focused on that. So well, you're filling a need. We're filling a need.
0: So you're you're observing what's around you <clears throat> instead of just being ego-driven. Hey, I'm president of this thing. You're saying, okay, how can we make the most powerful impact to help our economy?
1: Right, right, and with a little bit of a twist. Um, this may sound a little schizophrenic because you know, at the at its core, it's it's for me. It's about the students. I love the students. I love to talk to them on the sidewalk. I love to go to their events. Um, But here's the sort of schizophrenic part some people talk about who are our customers in higher education and I and some people would suggest that students are our customers and I will tell you that no they're not it's employers they are our customers
0: totally agree
1: so so while I care so much about the student our programming is intended to make sure that we meet the needs of, co- of, of employers so that you get someone that you can hire that helps you improve your profitability uh, you know helps you in, in, in your business uh, if we're not providing that kind of talent into the workforce then we're we're not meeting the needs of our quote-unquote customers C- you know students really are a little bit of both they're the product and they're the customer but fundamentally I, 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 I guess I need to say I understand that that we're not here to meet the the wants of students. Excuse me, we're here to meet the needs of employers. Sounds like a subtle thing. I I I like the look on your face, John, but uh, (laughs) but but you get the puzzled look. But there are people who who uh, particularly in um, for-profit institutions. And sometimes in in universities where you'll look at a program and you'll say, why are you doing that program? And the answer is often, well, because the students want that. Right. Well, we don't do things because the (laughs) students want that. We do things because employers need that.
0: The look on my face, Jim, was not (laughs) just puzzlement, but it was also uh, appreciation for the way you put that. Because I tell clients every day when I'm doing retirement planning, you may want something, but it could be that what you need is totally different. And you may say you need something, but it's in conflict with what you want. Mm-hmm. And I have that conversation several times a week. Ah. Because people will come in the door, I want this or I need this, I need that. And I said, well, how about we just suspend judgment for a moment and let's have a conversation and find out where you are currently. Because what you said you want, I could write you a financial prescription for that. And it might hurt you. Mm. So let's just listen to where you are and then work on results very good and you're result driven anybody who has been around you at all knows that so that was the look on my face all right jim let's talk a little bit about uh, i've heard you talk about the um some of the um president circle receptions and other things disruptions in the education world let's talk about that i find that to be fascinating
1: well, thank you. I'm, you ought to live it. You think it's fascinating. <laughs> I don't want to live it, but I, but
0: I want to hear about it. <laughs> it's, uh,
1: dis- disruptions are well, disruptions are happening to everyone. So let's you know, in let's every understand business, it. every Absolutely. business
0: period is happening.
1: Absolutely. <clears throat> so what are what are the disruptions in education? Well, I, the very first one, the most fundamental and most important one to me, is the the notion that the value proposition of higher education is is being questioned. Um, you know, we, when I grew up, you know, you're, it was, son, you're going to go to college. Uh, and and now, more, be, for a lot of reasons, one of them being the uh, amassing of student loan debts, uh, and people are beginning to question the cost versus the benefit uh, in the value proposition of education. Uh, we're being disrupted and have been disrupted from the standpoint of funding from the state. Uh, you know, there was a time when the state valued more what we do than they do now Um, but the disruptions in technology that affect us John uh, you know students now I I say this because I think it really captured it the best when I went to school to college um, when I walked into a classroom the university or the college had better technology than I could ever think about having in today's world students walk into our classrooms Mm -hmm with better technology than we have, better technology than we could ever afford to have on on a mass scale. That has turned the table on the way in which we do our business. So, lots of disruptions. The business models, because of funding, have changed. But the value proposition, I want to come back to that one because I think that one, that one is one that people really need to think through. I believe we in higher ed have done a disservice to uh, people for a long time by suggesting that the only way to a good life is through a degree. And uh, that's not the case. It probably never was the case, but it's certainly not the case now. There are a lot of our workforce programs that take you to a job that pays very, very well, uh, and it doesn't require a degree. And And when we take a look at what's happening around the state, um, it's it's Evident, and as we look forward, it's it's evident. I, I one of my roles is I serve on the board of the Florida Chamber Foundation, and had the opportunity to participate in a research piece referred to as uh, Jobs 2030. Uh, What the Florida Chamber and the Florida Chamber Foundation really do well, in my opinion, is that they put the long term ahead of the short term, and so the focus was on. Where does Florida need to be in 2030, particularly as it relates to jobs? And I can tell you that that the mix of jobs that we will need will increasingly be about skills and not about advanced degrees. Um, The future will be more about associate's degrees and credentials. Uh, That doesn't mean we won't continue to need doctors, we won't continue to need uh, master's prepared uh, employees. But the future will suggest that the huge growth in Florida's job base will happen in areas that don't require a degree. So the dialogue, again, one of the disruptions is that when I talk to somebody in IT, they'll say, Jim, I don't don't need a graduate with a degree. I don't even need a graduate that has a certain course. I need a graduate that has this skill. Mm -hmm. And that's a very different conversation than we've ever had before. And so what we are doing is, is, uh, is morphing. Uh, adapting and adjusting so that we can have those conversations with employers to meet just in time just enough training needs that they have instead of we're gonna give you a degree because by golly that's what we've always got we'll pull one off the shelf and that's what you're gonna do right so that disruption is is really gonna change everything for us and 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 it ripples so let me give you the the one area that I that I find a lot of pain with Um, if you say if you come to us and say Jim I want to get a a certificate in in uh, information technology, some area of information technology. I can give you I can get give you, and that's not a terrible way to say it. You can get federal financial aid to get a degree. You can't get federal financial aid to get a credential.
0: Which for that person is more valuable than a degree.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So Lots of disruptions are happening. We're going to work our way through it. It's an exciting time. I mean, you know, I always say, you know, the iPhone was a disruption. I don't hear a lot of people complain about it, but it it is a disruption. And all of what we're going through, again, the business model, the, uh, the value proposition, the technology, all of those things are going to shape the future of education. And we're still finding out how that's going to look. A few years ago, a thing came out called MOOCs, M-O-O-C, stood for Massive Online Open Courseware. And there were those that said it was going to completely transform higher education. These were free online courses, massive in the sense that you'd have one expert professor who would be teaching 50,000 people at one time. Now, particularly good for un- undeveloped, underdeveloped countries where they don't have access to anything. But it didn't change the landscape. So we're going we're to continue to see things like that. We're going to see one of the things that I love, by the way, is what's referred to as open educational resources, or OER, in higher ed. It, it as we sit here today, there are darn few things you could ever ask about that you can't get an answer for on the internet. Correct. So why in the world are we having students buy these expensive books in order to go through college? We have at TCC. We are we are. Uh, working through and piloting open educational resources for our students. And I believe that there will be a day, not terribly far off, when colleges and universities will move to OER and away from the traditional textbook. Those disruptions are all going to change what we do.
0: Well, that's definitely disrupting to the people printing those books,
1: isn't it? Yes, it is. <laughs> and and they know it. <clears throat> yep.
0: Uh, Jim, I'm going to throw something in here for a minute. You made me think of something. When I came here from the Air Force, 1974, got out of the Air Force. I came here really to go to law school. My plan was to go to law school, go to TCC, then FSU, then law school. Along the way, I decided not to do that. So I'm, I'm one of these people you're describing, because I'm probably the only person you know that has an AA degree and a master's degree, but no bachelor's degree.
1: You are the only one I know.
0: <laughs> because along the way, you, you said this, you talked about AA degree and then certifications. So I got my AA degree in 76 from TCC. Then, because of doing the insurance and financial planning work I was doing at the time in investment, I acquired designations called Chartered Financial Consultant, Chartered Life Underwriter, etc. So I was allowed to use that as my background and got credit for it as if it were a bachelor's degree to allow me to enroll in the master's program at the American College. So I'm a living example of what you just described. Then I realized that going to Florida State and then Florida State Law School just to get a, quote, piece of paper that says I'm an attorney, that wasn't right for me. It didn't fit the lifestyle I, I had decided to live. So I believe, and I use this phrase, it's probably not the right phrase, but I said I got educated in areas that I had a passion for and could use every day. Mm-hmm instead of getting this big blanket of education that I would not be able to use and my employer would say that's very nice put your diploma on the wall now we'll teach you what we want you to know because that's what happens a lot well so right. I'm a living example of what you just described
1: well and you were earlier you were an early adopter I'll call you but but you illustrate what what I refer to as the difference between an education and a degree um, you can get a degree and not get an education very true so You're you're a living example of the education side of that, but you're also a great example of how colleges and universities are coming to grips with the fact that um, there is value that people bring that is not necessarily what what they've earned in a classroom. Um, Your prior military, thank you for your service. You're welcome. Um, You no doubt went through training in the Air Force, and that training should have some value in the world of higher education. Uh, We now uh, look at those sorts of things when somebody comes to us and they ask for credit for what they've done outside of the traditional sphere of education. I didn't know Um, you did that. That's great. And why shouldn't you? I mean, why shouldn't you get credit for things like that, right?
0: Absolutely. I, I wasn't aware you did that. That's good to know. Any other disruptors you want to talk about? Because I'm, I'm just anxious to get into another topic that I've no, heard no, you talk no. about. Go
1: ahead, there's lots I, of them. Go okay,
0: ahead. I want to talk about <laughs> civility in um, conversations in the classrooms because that, that's been in our news not long ago. So let's talk about that if you don't mind.
1: Yes, civility is. Uh, um, there was some local press coverage of this notion of our board creating a policy on civility. And there were those who questioned why. Why do we need a policy on civility?
0: Because we're not civil.
1: Well, they're, they're, uh, <laughs> I can tell you there are some examples of that. Uh, I got a little surprised when, when it was suggested that we've never had any incidents. I, I've been in a room uh, when we've had incidents. I've, uh, so, But the bigger issue for me, John, and this is the part I think we, we really need to step back and look at is that I believe that colleges, and well, let me talk about the role of a college. Let me tell you what I talk about with TCC. Okay. I think we have two responsibilities. Number one, getting back to the value proposition, I think we have the obligation to give a student a degree or a credential that has market value is the term that I like to use. And what that means to me is, again, either that degree or credential moves you forward into a university with junior-level status or it moves you into a job that provides you with a family-sustaining wage. That's my definition of market value. But the other part, candidly, which I am just as passionate about, is that we should provide you experiences that have social value. I think we, in colleges and universities, are where we produce citizens. And so when when you are attending TCC, I care about the fact that you learn how to carry out your responsibilities as a citizen. So what do I mean by that? Well, let me say this, because some people have said, well, my gosh, this is a free speech thing. You're, 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 you're stepping on free speech. No, we're not stepping on free speech. Um, in fact, I think the most difficult conversations in America should happen on a college campus. I think we bring people there, we expose them to ideas that they've never been exposed to before in their family, uh, we in their family setting. I think we invite that. We should invite that. We should have healthy disagreements because that's where people figure out their, their viewpoints for the rest of their lives. So that for, so when I say civility, I know that students are watching everything we say and everything we do as faculty and staff and administrators. So we should role model if you civility is a learned behavior yes it is and so i think we have the obligation and the opportunity to role model it so that students see that yeah i can talk about hate speech i can talk about guns i can talk about goodness whatever that is a very difficult subject and and yet i can do it in an atmosphere where i learn how to do it uh such that that um it's not, it doesn't suppress other people's viewpoints and it, and it does not result in, in a kind of personal animosities that we see it that's happening at the national level. I don't think there's ever been a time in my life when it's been more important for us to, to stress how we should demonstrate civility on a campus.
0: I totally agree. And I just had a thing flash, flash through my head, a quote attributed to Abraham Lincoln. He said, I do not like that man. I should get to know him. And I'm reminded of a couple of attorneys who I knew battled each other in court a lot. And one day I saw them having a beer together. I said, weren't you guys just in a lawsuit where you were bitter enemies? They said, we were. Join us. So I had a beer with them. I said, okay, you got to explain this to me. This was a lesson for me, by the way, because I was 30, 32 years old at the time, maybe. And I felt like that your competition is your enemy. Mm. Competition mm-hmm. is not your enemy. Right. Competition is good, no matter what field you're in, because it helps you grow. But what I learned from this exchange as a man and a woman, is yes, in the courtroom, we have an obligation to fight on behalf of our client. But once we leave that courtroom, we're human beings again. So we will fight, but we do it under rules and regulations that are designed to keep the peace. And sometimes we lose our temper in the courtroom. Sometimes they lose our temper out of the courtroom. But for the most part, we have the ability and they said, brush it off. Yeah, What a valuable lesson. Absolutely. That it's okay for you and I to disagree. Right. And one of my mentors said, it's okay to disagree. It's not okay to be disagreeable. Mm-hmm. And that's really what you're saying. Absolutely. And I, and I love the fact that, and I agree totally, that people should learn at the college Institution, if you will, that facility, about different things so that when they get out in the real world, they're not getting all bent out of shape because they don't agree with you on something. Yeah. Uh, we need to teach that to some 60s and 70-year-olds, too, by the way, while we're at it. <clears throat> this conversation has got me thinking I should go back out and enroll in TCC well. and go to back to
1: school. I'm enjoying we'll, we'll, this. We'll sign you up, buddy. <laughs>
0: okay. All right. Talk about um, some of these toxic conversations for just a minute. So how do we teach people How do you teach people at the college level, it's okay to have these tough conversations, but you have gotta find a way to not let it either depress you or make you so angry that it paralyzes you. Is that what you mean by a toxic conversation?
1: Yeah, Um, and I think the way you do it is you tee it up with, uh, and we've had faculty do this very well, Uh, you tee it up so that you've got both sides of an argument that will be pursued uh, during a workshop, during class, um, and and moderated by a faculty member who can do so uh, with with a level head and, a, and an appropriate tone. That's how, that's how you do it. You you show them. You model it. And we forget how important that is, John. We think that all that matters is the words. All that matters is the positions that you take. And and my position is no. What matters is students seeing that a it's okay, and b uh, that that uh, the way we do it is something they can learn from.
0: All right. Let's talk a little bit about adult education and GED programs. Mm-hmm. You told a story earlier before we uh, went live about uh, you love seeing people who, quote, had hard times or, opp- or missed opportunities and maybe even how they overcame those to get a GED or graduate from TCC. Take a moment and uh, share some of your experiences there because I found that to be very, uh, very touching.
1: Well, it's, it's meaningful. I tell you, as I, I said to you, if you ever want to come to a, a graduation ceremony where you're almost guaranteed to have teary eyes at some point, uh, come to a GED graduation uh, because what you generally see are people who uh, chose or, or failed out of school who then had to overcome all kinds of obstacles to choose to come back to pursue a GED. So many times um, you hear heartbreaking stories of of abuse, you hear heartbreaking stories of you know financially, uh, the struggles that they went through, Um, you hear, you know, working two jobs, three jobs, children at home, I mean it's just amazing the, the things that they overcome with a real determination to come back and change their lives. And and so the distance they travel from being where they were to to graduating from that program is 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 amazing to watch and and the thing that that tugs at my heart all the time is that I love the fact that we help people by giving them the opportunity to change their lives. Right. And I have seen lives changed through GED and that's amazing.
0: Key word is opportunity. You can't do it for them, but you can provide the opportunity and the environment for them to pursue that if they wish. Absolutely. Talk a little bit about the adult education program. Because a lot of people listening to this are going to be sitting and say, okay, there's got to be classes I could take out there on that campus. Uh, A lot of us, I have a 12-year-old grandson. A lot of us have grandchildren and great-grandchildren that we're concerned about their future as far as having a job, getting educated. So let's talk about the two ends of the spectrum. For those who have children that will be going to college in the future, or grandchildren, and then for themselves, maybe like me, I'm 65 years old. What are some of the programs that are ongoing in the adult area?
1: Well, it's interesting. So, when you said adult education, we usually think of the GED arena when when you talk adult education, Mm -hmm. but you're really talking more about uh, a demographic of older students. Okay. Right? Yes. Um, Well, I think I mentioned to you last night I had uh, this amazing experience where I was at an event and our president of the Student Government Association was speaking and in the front row was his mother. Which That's not uncommon, quite frankly. What was uncommon was to learn that she is a TCC student. And at the risk of being rude, let's just say she looked older than you and me. Mm -hmm. Uh, So she, she... but she chose to come back at her age, whatever it is. Let's just assume she's our age. It's still, that's not the age demographic you normally think of. We don't have specific degrees for that age group, but but I can tell you that age group is represented at the college in all of our programs. Uh, we do have continuing education stuff as well. So if there's sort of skills-oriented efforts in our workforce development division, uh, we would have things that would be designed for those who are in the workplace, uh, or those who are not in the workplace anymore, and we started this past year a program at Westminster Oaks uh, at their request. So we're dealing with the retired population there at Westminster, and they they want everything from how to use my cell phone uh, to history. Uh, it, they're just their their interests are varied. Yes, they are. And we and we try really hard to just kind of go out there and meet their needs because. You know, learning should be a lifelong enterprise.
0: Right. I'm definitely one of these guys. I'm a lifelong learner. I'm constantly reading and studying and learning something new, and I hope I do that to the day I die.
1: Absolutely. I
0: keep some books over there to your right. You'll see Kurt Douglas's book, Life Could Be Verse. He turned 101 December 9th last year. I'm 65. We had the same birthday. And George Burns, he died at age 100. They had to cancel some events he was scheduled to go to because he was <laughs> dead. Yeah and then Betty White I think she's 95 either 95 or 96 now so people ask me when I'm going to retire the answer is hopefully never as long as I'm healthy and people want me I'll be there but you got to learn you got to and you've used the word value a half a dozen probably a dozen times today <laughs> mm-hmm. as long as you're bringing value to other people and you're enjoying it why would you stop?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: stop and do what? sit home and watch television and wither? so, so I'm loving what I'm hearing here Uh, Let's talk a little bit about legacy opportunities. You educated me earlier on some things that are going on to where someone listening to this says, wow, you know, I went to TCC or I had family members who did. How can I help from the standpoint of financial help? Let's talk about that. What are some of the things happening with the foundation?
1: Well, goodness, lots of things happening with the foundation. We're very, uh, very pleased that we've got a very robust uh, offering that's going on with the foundation activities. They're amazing. Our executive director, Heather Mitchell is phenomenal. And, and I say this, uh, I've said it many times. What I love about Heather Mitchell is that she is good at raising money, but her heart understands why. Yes. And, and that is a wonderful combination quite frankly. And she
0: cares. She's not, her goal is not just to, Hey, how much money can I raise? How much money can we raise and do good things with it?
1: Yeah, so to make an impact. So let me share, this would be. This is probably going to shock you. Um, we talked about GED. Yes. We actually have a scholarship program that we put together through the foundation. My wife and I are contributors to this scholarship, for example. But here's the part that's going to shock you. The scholarships that we provide are $30 scholarships do you know we have people who could not come to a GED program if they had not received a $30 scholarship, John? Yep. All the way up to, and so those are very meaningful, all the way up to, you know, we have naming opportunities for buildings if someone is interested. Many are familiar with the Gasvini Healthcare Center. Well, that's named in honor of the Gasvini family because of a, a large donation that they made but everything in between you know the thing that's interesting with with foundation work at a college many people many 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 people tell me like you with pride how they were TCC alums and they moved on but nationwide there's in in philanthropy people generally identify more with their co- their university than they do with their community college um, and so when it comes down to philanthropy and so but
0: back up to why yeah. Why is that so? Don't know.
1: Don't know. Um, I think universities have been far more aggressive and they have a greater track record in terms of of their philanthropy efforts. Colleges haven't necessarily been as aggressive as we as we could be. But during our 50th, you may remember just a couple of years ago, um, we were we were successful in a 15 million dollar campaign which created opportunities to uh, revise classrooms to redo dental lab to create scholarships like you can't even believe we created scholarships uh, a host of, of those kinds of things so to your question though what what can somebody do uh, let me let me start, let me say it differently let me give some examples we've had people who have wanted to name a classroom uh, a specific classroom Either because of their business or because they have a personal uh, relationship with a professor that changed their life, and they want to name a classroom, and uh, that that is something that's available at the college. And we're actually going through a campaign right now to try to finish naming 50 classrooms. We're I think we're close to 40 that have been that have been named now. That that is an example where we ask for $25,000 um, from a donor. And that can be done in a number of different ways. So, most people are doing it at um, five thousand dollars a year for five years, and therefore they can use it as charitable charitable contribution. And what we do is the college matches that twenty-five thousand dollars, so it becomes a fifty thousand dollar classroom renovation, and it transforms the classroom. I'll tell you, it's just it's phenomenal to watch. <laughs> We've had um, donors who have. Um, created an honors lounge for our students. We had donors uh, redo our STEM lab, science, technology, engineering, and math. We had donors that have created leadership programs for veterans uh, and redone our Veterans Center. So there are a lot of of options. And If anyone is interested in pursuing something like like that, please call our foundation uh, and indicate your interest. Um, Nothing is too small. When a $30 scholarship can change a life,
0: Ah, that's powerful
1: uh, then imagine what yes. else can be done
0: you know you make me sit sort of thinking about something uh, over the years uh, my wife and I have given $500 scholarships to newly minted Eagle Scouts each year and so there thinking how can we uh, I sometimes think $500 is not enough now you're making me realize wow what an impact $500 has uh, compared to a $30 when I go both, both changed the life, perhaps. Mm-hmm. You know, and mm-hmm. I was thinking it wasn't big enough. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. You made a comment earlier about something called the Eagle Business Society, but we never got detailed on it. Can you take a, just a few minutes and tell us what that is for people who are listening that might sure. want to know more about the business side?
1: Sure. So when you come to a community college, you get an AA. We don't have AA. AA in psychology, AA in business, AA in whatever. But we do have concentrations, and we do have the ability for students to uh, design their pathway through our college to get them to where they want to be in a university. So if you want to get into the business school, for example, at Florida State, there are certain prerequisite courses that you can and should take at TCC. And so the Eagle Business Society is uh, run by our faculty who are teaching those courses that are specifically aligned with those who want to go to Florida State or Florida A&M in the, in the business schools. Huh. So it's a way to help prepare them to be better it is. Pre- prepared for mm-hmm. university? It is. And they do some out-of-class work as well, so some some activities as the business society, so they get the students together and they'll do projects and things outside the classroom. But it's all designed for those who have an interest in business in a very general way.
0: Interesting, interesting. We're about to run out of time here, but I could go on for another five hours. This is just very fascinating. What would be some of the key points you'd like to leave our listeners with? Whether it be summarizing what we've covered or something that's popped in your head since we've been talking—fascinating um, stuff. And every time I'm around you, I learn something new and. Um, Love going to the receptions to hear what you're up to, but how would you like to? Um, how would you like to end this from the standpoint of letting people know what you're working on next, what the college is doing, just anything, anything that pops in your head.
1: Well, wow. well, the college is working on a lot of things now. Uh, we're we we've got a request in for Gulf oil spill funds to build out our phase two of our Wakulla Environmental Institute. Uh, that is changing the landscape of Wakulla and surrounding counties. Uh, our health care programs at Gasvini are uh, really meeting important needs in our community, trying to fulfill the needs for nurses and so forth. Yes. Let
0: me jump into that. When you had the President's Circle reception out there a couple of weeks ago, uh-huh. I was fast. I wasn't going to take the tour. I was going to leave early. I'm glad I didn't. Just being able to watch these students... Working on mannequins that are as lifelike as you could get, and just watching the instruction going on and what they were doing was fascinating. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. I wish everybody in our community could, could see something like that going on.
1: Well, let me let me say this: anyone is welcome to come tour anything that we do. Um, all they have to do is show up and say, "I I'm, I would love to see what you're doing here," and, and ask for a tour. And you're right; that healthcare facility is. Uh, it's a stunning uh, piece of our community.
0: Let's do something. I would like to invite clients to come out and have it, those who are interested get a tour of that. Would you help us do that? Absolutely. Let's do it. Because Absolutely. Because, see, one of the biggest concerns for people I have going forward in retirement is health care. Sure. Paying for health insurance premiums or how to what if I have a long-term care needs situation. So that's something that I think everyone in our community would want to know more about is health care. But I'll be honest until I had that tour, I didn't understand the scope and probably still don't understand fully what it is you're doing at the college in the area of healthcare.
1: Well, I think the biggest bragging point for me <clears throat> was when we opened the facility and that would have been in, gosh, 2012, somewhere in that ballpark, I remember a surgeon who uh, walked to the building from TMH because we're right down the street. Um, Thanks to TMH, we're right down the street. And um, they gave us the land on which the facility sits. And the surgeon walked in in his scrubs (laughs) and went and took a tour of the building during the grand opening. And he came up to me and he said, he says, I need to tell you, I I went to Johns Hopkins uh, for my training and you have better equipment than I trained on at Johns Hopkins. Wow. Now that's the kind of accolade you really, really like.
0: Yep. It's a great facility. Uh, t- tell us a little bit more in detail of what's happening down in Wakala County.
1: Well, we, we, uh, we're very proud of the oyster aquaculture program we created down there. Uh, first ever water column lease from the governor and cabinet that allows us to grow oysters on the surface of the water using a technique called the Australian longline line method. Um, yeah, as you know, the oyster industry down there in Franklin County and the surrounding counties was was really devastated. Yep. Um, well, this technique allows us to grow, grow oysters on the surface of the water, um, which gives the oysters more sunlight, uh, the, the current gives them better nutrients, uh, they're not subject to predators because they're not on the bottom and they're a whole lot easier to harvest. Um, we have changed the, the landscape down there. We've created a whole new industry down there. And it's growing like crazy. So right now, we've asked for funding because the Gulf oil spill money is finally coming to the state of Florida in the aftermath of that tragedy. And each county is is going to be receiving significant sums of money. So we've put an application in for funds to help us move to now phase two of what we're doing down there and expand it. So that's that's what we're doing in Wakulla.
0: That's great. That's great. Uh, Any final thoughts from the standpoint of creating... Better uh, citizens who come out of your school, your college, or leaders, anything on that theme you want to end with? Because you you have a knack for creating leaders around you and attracting leaders.
1: Well, thank you for saying that. Um, I'll start with my fundamental <coughs> philosophy, which is that leadership is a behavior not a position and that's that's the thing that whenever we do anything at the college that's what we stress so I don't care what your position is at the college we need leadership behaviors out of people just like you do here John you want everyone who works here to exhibit leadership behaviors so we try to foster that whether it's in our faculty and staff or whether it's in our students uh, to provide opportunities again to learn the skills and that they are skills so uh, something we care about, and, and as you rightly point out, um, our role in producing citizens is is passionate for me.
0: Yes, it is. And it shows. And anyone who walks around and sees your face, they can tell. Anything else you want to share uh, before we go?
1: I just want to say thank you for inviting me uh, for, to be here. I always enjoy our conversations.
0: Well, you're welcome, and I thank you for being a friend also. Yeah, thank, thank you, you sir.
2: If you would like to know more about John Curry services, you can request a complimentary information package by visiting JohnHCurry.com slash podcast. Again, that is JohnHCurry.com slash podcast, or you can call his office at 850-562-3000. Again, that is 850-562-3000. John H. Curry, Chartered Life Underwriter, Charter Financial Consultant, Accredited Estate Planner, Master's in Science and Financial Services, Certified in Long-Term Care, Registered Representative and Financial Advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC. Securities, Products and Services and Advisory Services are offered through Park Avenue Securities, a Registered Broker, Dealer and Investment Advisor, Financial Representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, New York, New York. Park Avenue Securities is an indirect, wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. North Florida Financial Corporation is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Park Avenue Securities. Park Avenue Securities is a member of FINRA and SIPC. This material is intended for general public use. By providing this material, we are not undertaking to provide investment advice for any specific individual or situation or to otherwise act in a fiduciary capacity. Please contact one of our financial professionals for guidance and information specific to your individual situation. All investments contain risk and may lose value. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. Guardian, its subsidiaries, agents, or employees do not provide legal, tax, or accounting advice. Please consult with your attorney, accountant, and or tax advisor for advice concerning your particular circumstances, not affiliated with the Florida Retirement System. The Living Balance Sheet and the Living Balance Sheet logo are registered service marks of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, New York, New York, copyright 2005 through 2018. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by Park Avenue Securities or Guardian and opinions stated are thereof.